Day 44, posted November 21st, 2002, 11.32 a.m. The Great Discovery The lack of pastries at the studio and, more importantly, the lack of chocolate muffins weighed heavily on my mind as I got ready this morning. The hotel pastries are subpar at best, as hotel pastries usually are. I've stopped at several bakeries in the past few days that have been good, but certainly not exceptional, and none of them had chocolate muffins. The chocolate muffins that I've grown accustomed to in L.A. come from a killer bakery, so I am without a doubt spoiled. But this is New York City, one of the culinary capitals of the world. To date, recommendations from locals have only taken me so far, as it seems I'm some sort of pastry snob. What else is new? As with most things in my life, finding the perfect bakery would likely require more kismet than ingenuity. Understanding the ways of kismet, I decided to take a different route to the studio. As it turns out, it's the best decision I've made in quite some time. As I limped fully in pain from my splints and clearly underdressed for fall in New York, I was stopped dead to my tracks by the most delightfully pleasing smell that has ever stimulated my olfactory senses. I felt like Buddy Hackett in the movie It's a Mad, 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 Mad World when he stopped dead in his tracks after running right under the palm trees that formed the big W that he and every other character in the movie was searching for. I stood there in the middle of the sidewalk, squatting with my arms out like a wrestler preparing to take down his opponent, sniffing frantically, trying to locate precisely where the smell was coming from. Just as Buddy Hackett had done, I turned slowly and most deliberately around to see before me the most glorious bakery I've ever set eyes on, an authentic French bakery, jammed with people and filled with pastries. Without another thought, I entered. Alas, this bakery too did not have the chocolate muffins I so adore. No, they had something better. They had freshly made chocolate croissants, and that is precisely what I ordered. One chocolate croissant and a large coffee, please. I said to the worker behind the counter. As excited as a teenager who had just scored his first nudie magazine, I found myself a little table, brushed off the crumbs left by the inconsiderate little prick who sat there before me, quickly unwrapped my croissant, and took my first bite. I swear to you, it was by far the best croissant that I've ever had in my life. And my coffee, oh, my coffee was easily the greatest cup of coffee I've had since I was in France. This place was as authentically French as a French bakery can be, save the Latino workers behind the counter. In fact, were it not for the Latino workers, I'm thoroughly convinced that I would have actually been in France, and we would be discussing the fact that there is a direct portal to Paris located somewhere in midtown Manhattan. Of course, this is far from being a C.S. Lewis novel, so I'll spare you that particular claim. This bakery was too good to not share, even with Bitch Slap. I purchased a box of 20 croissants and headed toward the studio. When I arrived, I was greeted by my favorite security guard, and for the briefest of moments, I thought that I'd be automatically permitted to pass. But I wasn't. Name, please. Mixer Man? I replied quizzically. As he searched for my name, I opened up my box of croissants and placed them on his desk in front of him. Have a croissant. 
There's cheese, chocolate, apple, and plain ones. Take your pick. And take one for later. Well, I don't mind if I do. This is one of my favorite bakeries, said the security guard as he picked up two croissants, one chocolate, one cheese. He immediately took a bite from the cheese one, strewing crumbs everywhere in the process. You're not on the list, he said with his mouth full of cheese croissant. Which studio are you working in? Were I a comic book character, and I'm beginning to wonder if I am, I'm quite confident that there would have been a black scribble hovering over my head at that particular moment. This is the third time I've come to the studio. I offer him a bribe, and he still has to make sure I'm on the list. So, who's in charge of the list? Well, that would be Violet, he replied as he picked up the phone for verification. Violet's the studio manager. She came down yesterday to meet and greet, and I've spoken to her on the phone on more than one occasion in order to deal with the details of preparing for the session, but it was apparent I'd need to spend some time with her. When I finally got to the womb, the band was already there, which I can remember happening only twice before this, and both times I happened to be late. Perhaps the move to New York was actually a good decision and would help the band be more focused. It's a pretty expensive way to focus, but I suppose the label has no shortage of money. Willie and the band enjoyed the croissant so much that he immediately called Violet and asked her to come down to our room. When she arrived, he offered her a croissant, which she declined. I don't really blame her, because as delicious as croissants are is as messy as they are. When you bite into them, they flake all over the fucking place. The control room was covered with greasy little flakes of croissant. Violet is obviously an experienced woman in the ways of croissants, because there is really no way to eat these things gracefully. Violet agreed to have the bakery deliver our croissants every morning. Apparently you can have anything delivered in New York, and delivery is almost always free. They don't even build the delivery costs into the price. <clears throat> Not wanting there to be any errors, I asked Violet to make sure there were always at least five chocolate croissants in the box. She assured me that she would. I took a moment to ask Violet about the list and the security guard. She promised me that she would make sure that we were all on the list from now on and apologized for the problems getting in. Personally, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, if a chocolate croissant can't get you in without incident, then as far as I'm concerned, nothing will. The band and Willie were still working on their lyrics and melodies for their new hit single, so I slipped out and went shopping for sneakers but I couldn't find the ones I was looking for. When I was in a small shop in Brentwood, California, I found a pair of eco walking shoes that looked like black athletic sneakers. Unfortunately, they didn't have my size, and so I have been searching for a store that carries this particular shoe. The best news of all is that this model of shoe is just over $100, which is extremely inexpensive for ecos. If you've never tried on a pair of ecos, you're missing out because they are the most technologically advanced shoes in the world where comfort is concerned. Stylistically, I feel they leave something to be desired. But they are the premier walking shoe. I found several little shops that carried Ecos, but none of them carried this particular shoe. When I returned, the band and Willie seemed prepared to start recording the song. They were still at an impasse on the melody and the chorus, but they'd record the song anyway. I have never quite understood the thinking behind recording a song that isn't completely written. It's quite common, and it's fraught with problems that cause the process to take twice as long. I can't understand why the hell we weren't recording the songs that are fully written and I would assume well rehearsed.
If you don't know the melody of the chorus, it's impossible to write counter melodies. Oftentimes, it's the top note in the guitar voicing that supplies the counter melody. What invariably happens is that a guitar part or a bass part is laid down only to have to be reworked later because some note rubs with the melody. To be fair, sometimes having the basic parts recorded makes it easier to finish the song, but this is best served by a demo. Then, one must consider the fact that without a lyric, one relinquishes the possibility of the use of prosody, that is, performing the music so as to take the lyric literally. The simplest example of this is having the music stop on the word stop, which happens in countless songs, such as the Supremes, Stop in the Name of Love, or Buffalo Springfield's, Stop, Children, What's That Sound? In those two examples, the music literally stops on the word stop. That's an example of prosody. Despite my opinions on this subject, I wasn't running the show. That would be Willie's show. So we recorded the song a few times and the band came in to listen before getting into a two-hour debate on the form of the song. How you debate the form of a song that doesn't have a clear content, a clear melody, and a clear direction in general is beyond me. But that's what happened, and this is precisely my point. Normally the band would come in and be debating the merits of the sounds or the arrangements. These guys weren't listening to that aspect of the recording at all. That was irrelevant because they were still focusing on the song itself. We recorded the song three more times. Willie felt that it was too fast, and they had a 20-minute debate about that. Call me crazy. Call me maybe. But one of the biggest factors that I use in determining a tempo is how it sings. Sometimes the track will sound great at one tempo, but the singer can't get the words out. Without lyrics, how the hell do we know how the song sings? By the time the day was done, we had seven reels of this song with different forms and different tempos. Tomorrow we will sort through the 21 takes and figure out where to go from there, the humor of which does not escape me. <sighs> no longer did we have to deal with the painstaking recording of 21 takes just to get enough material to put together a mediocre drum take. The new drummer put an end to that nonsense. So what do we do? Fuck around recording a song that isn't even remotely ready to be recorded and record 21 takes of that. Let me just set the record straight here. I understand that this is a creative process and that sometimes it's important to take a detour in the course of this process. I get that the band is excited about the song and this sort of enthusiasm is valuable to a session, particularly this one. But the band spent two fucking years writing hundreds of songs, none of which are actually recorded after 40-some days of recording. I mean, shouldn't we be trying to record the album? As I type this, I can't resist asking myself the question that all men ask when they are involved in a debacle of epic proportions. It's the question that the greatest philosophers in the history of the world ultimately ask themselves, and it's the question the simplest of men have asked themselves. Most definitely, it's the question that I have been asking myself on many occasions since this project started. It's a question that is simultaneously the most egotistical question one could ask oneself and the most unassuming question one could ask oneself. Is it just me? Mixer Man. <laughs>